On Friday, we had the 70th anniversary of D-Day, as you probably likely know. We know that on June 6, 1944, uh, the American and Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy. It was the most remarkable uh, event in the history of war. It's also the bloodiest battle in the history of war, uh, but it changed the whole course of the war going on between the Germans and essentially everyone else. There were 6,483 vessels that were involved in this battle, 132,715 troops who, who stormed those beaches and 27,400 paratroopers who were just jumping out of planes as bullets and bombs are flying past them and oftentimes hitting them. But at the end of that battle, the back of the German army had been crushed. It was essentially the battle that sealed the deal for the Allied forces. Now, that's D-Day. But the war would not officially end until V-Day. V-Day in Europe was May of 45, some 11 months later. And then you had V-Day in Japan, in August of 45, just over a year later. So between D-Day, when the war was essentially won, and V-Day, when the war officially ended, you had bloody skirmishes. You had um, uh, violent fights and battles. But the Allied forces were fighting from a posture of victory. And the German army was fighting from a position of defeat. As we come to our text today, recognize that it's now Friday. Ironically, what we call Good Friday. The clock has struck 12. It struck 12 about the time the hour of the power of darkness struck last week as we saw Jesus was betrayed and arrested. Occurs about sometime right after midnight. And now, it's Friday before sunrise. In other words, it's D-Day. It's D-Day. Because on this day, this Friday, Jesus Christ is going to a cross. And on the cross, He is going to crush the enemy's head. He's going to crush the seed of the serpent, which is the promise that takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 3.15. In fact, John tells us, one who was there, that the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. That's why He came. And the cross and the resurrection is D-Day. Because in the cross... Jesus Christ destroys the works of the devil. He crushes his head. Now, how does he do that? Well, John also tells us that he came to take away our sins. So how is the taking away of our sins and, and the destruction of the devil related? Well, the ground, the throne of the devil's dominion is our guilt for our sin. Okay? He ever lives to accuse us. And he is the slanderer, and he has a throne into our lives because of our guilt of our sin. But when that guilt is removed through the cross, the devil's throne is destroyed. That is, when Jesus Christ takes the guilt, he takes the wrath 
that we deserve. And then is raised from the grave, our sins are taken away, that is, those who repent of their sins and believe on the Lord Jesus, and the devil's head is crushed. Indeed, the cross is D-Day. Now this, this part of the story is a very gut-wrenching part of this entire story that's leading us to the cross. And actually, it began in verse 31 of chapter 22. So this is actually part two of that story. If you remember back in 31, Jesus warns Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, that is when you've repented, all right? When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Well, Peter, being the self-sufficient, presumptuous one, does not take Jesus at his word. That's always a problem for a believer. He said, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. In other words, what you're saying is nonsense. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times. Or you deny three times that you know me. And so, that's really the beginning of the story. And actually, you could go all the way back to verse 24, where a dispute arose. Now, the text doesn't tell us who began this dispute, but we all know. It doesn't take a lot of common sense here to know Peter was in the middle of this. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was regarded as the greatest. That comes right after the institution of the Lord's Supper. And then you have that whole sleeping episode. Jesus tells the disciples while he is agonizing in the garden, don't go to sleep. You need to pray lest you enter into temptation. But instead of praying, the disciples are sleeping. And then last week, we saw Peter go samurai on Malchus. They come to arrest Peter, arrest Jesus, and Peter pulls out his sword and cuts off Caiaphas' servant, Malchus's ear. Now at this point, there's been no outright rebellion by Peter towards Jesus, but it's very clear things aren't going well. Okay, there are dark clouds on the horizon. Peter is in a dangerous place. He is what I would label him a prayerless, presumptuous pupil of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's a true believer. He loves the Lord Jesus Christ, but he's prayerless and he's presumptuous. And that is a very, very dangerous place to be. Now, scholars estimate, as I said, the events of the betrayal and the arrest that we read about last week occur right after midnight. Okay? And so this is Friday, and sunrise is just a couple of hours on the horizon. That sun is going to usher in what we know as Good Friday. Now, we know it's not yet sunrise because a rooster hasn't crowed yet. But we also recognize that rooster is about to crow. And it's going to reveal some very difficult and painful things about Peter. Now at this point, Jesus is in custody. He's been arrested. Uh, his hands are chained. And he's going to endure six different trials before he is condemned. He's going to endure three trials from the Jews. 
And then he's going to endure three trials from the Romans. And it's during the second, you could say, Jewish trial that what we see in this present place, uh, this present text, takes place. Uh, this is his trial before Caiaphas, the high priest. John tells us in John 18, he actually had an earlier trial before Annas, who was the former high priest. And contextually, we know at this point that Peter is very self-sufficient. He is prayerless. Uh, he is presumptuous and he is prideful. And that always sets you up for failure. And combine that with the fact that this is the power, hour of the power of darkness, as Jesus said in verse 53, and you have a very unsettling recipe. Now, the first thing I want us to see here is that even the most committed disciple can commit grievous sin. Even the most committed disciple can commit the most grievous sin. Look with me in verse 54. Then they seized him, Jesus, and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. That's Caiaphas' house, Matthew tells us. And Peter was following at a distance. Actually, there was one other disciple following as well. John 18 tells us, that there was one other disciple with Peter. He remains unnamed in John. But scholars tell us that is very likely John himself who is following along. We know that all the other disciples have scattered. Matthew's account tells us, Matthew 26 verse 56, all the disciples left him and fled, except Peter and John here. In Peter's case... Matthew 26, verse 58, tells us why he is following Jesus. Um, it's very insightful, in fact. Verse 58 says, Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards, notice, to see the end. It's kind of telling, isn't it? He doesn't think it's going to end well. He's following so that he can see the end. Uh, the end of Jesus' life, his ministry, the end of his hopes. So Peter is not very optimistic at this point. And even though it's at a distance that he follows Jesus, at least we have to give him some credit. He's following him. Odds are, you and I would be one of those other nine who have fled the scene. Okay? In fact, it's, it's hard to be too hard on Peter because even though he's following at a distance, it's a very dangerous place to be, to be associated with Jesus at this particular point. And so his following at a distance seems quite legitimate at face value. But it's likely there is a double entendre here. The gospel writers are very good about those things. In other words, there's more than meets the eye. Peter is a believer. Peter is a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not dealing here with an unbeliever. He is like many of us. Uh, he is someone who has trusted in Jesus for his salvation. But he is following at a distance. He's keeping it safe. That is, he's at a distance in space, 
But it's likely Luke and Matthew telling us that it's also, that's true increasingly in his heart. He's following Jesus at a distance. You know, there's a paradox, you see, with Jesus' teachings. For instance, all the way back in Luke chapter 9, he says, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That hasn't hit home with Peter yet. He wants Jesus on his terms. Okay? He likes being associated with Jesus, but he's not going to endanger his life to follow him. And he's a lot like many of us. We're believers, but don't ask me to follow Jesus and inconvenience my life, inconvenience my checkbook, inconvenience my schedule in my pursuit of Jesus. I will follow Jesus at a distance. But Jesus would tell each, each one of us, He will not be fire insurance for you. He is Lord. And he, if you are a believer and you are following Him at a distance, trust me, you will not remain there. The discipline of God will get you where He wants you to be. But there are many American Christians where it's not costly to be a Christian who think that they are okay after all. Uh, they compare themselves with their neighbors. They compare themselves with their, their workmates and even perhaps other family members. At least they're following Jesus. Yes, it may be at a distance. Uh, Jesus just may be a time slot in my calendar at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. Uh, but at least I'm following Him. And you think you're okay. Because you're comparing yourself with others who don't even follow Him at all. And all it takes is a test to show us how really low our commitment level really is. And God is good at testing us. Look in verse 55. We see Peter's test. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl. That same term is used in all the Gospels to refer to a girl who's probably 10 to 15 years old. Real intimidating person here. Um... Seeing him as he sat in the light, looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it. Saying, Woman, I do not know him. Wow. Not a single one of us, if we'd been living in that day, would have seen this coming. Peter is the most committed. He's the most vocal. None of us would have seen this coming. I don't know him. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. Peter said, Man, I am not. Second denial. And after an interval, about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. They could recognize it by the accent. Probably all, 11 of the 12 disciples were Galilean, Judas being the exception. Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. Mark and Matthew tells us he did it with curses. Out of a man's heart 
he speaks. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Now someone might ask if a real Christian could ever do that. Could a real Christian ever just flat out deny the Lord Jesus Christ the way Peter did here? But there's no doubt that Peter is a believer. There's no doubt at this point in the narrative, Peter is a believer. I can think back to Luke chapter 5 when they had been fishing all night to no avail. They're professional fishermen. They're very good at what they do. And Peter says, throw out, or Jesus says, throw out your nets again. Peter says, Lord, we've been fishing all night. Um, and we've not caught anything, but at your word we will do it. They throw out the nets and they almost break the nets. They catch so many fish, the boat's about to turn over. And what does he say? He bows down. He says, depart from me, I am a sinful man, O Lord. And then you have the time in John 6 when the, the crowds are, the, the crowds were attracted to Jesus and then he started talking theology. You know, people say doctrine divides. Yes, it does. Doctrine divides. That's a good thing because it separates the wheat from the chaff. And Jesus began to speak about the true bread from manna that you must eat of in order to have eternal life. And the crowd started skirting away. They started fleeing. And he asked the disciples, Are you going to flee as well? Peter said, well, where are we going to go? To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That is Jesus. That's Peter's confession. And we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Then in Matthew 16, he confesses that great confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And still we need to ask though, how can a believer with the spiritual privileges that Peter had, how could a believer regress to this place where he had regressed? And the answer is it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen overnight. It is a slow fade. It's like air in a tire. It just slowly goes out of the tire. It's like Freon in your air conditioner. Okay? And anytime uh, you, you analyze the great spiritual failure of a believer, you always find that there's this slow spiritual drift. Okay? And I think you can see that even in this section of Scripture. In fact, this section of Scripture, I think, is a very helpful tutorial on how a believer can digress and fall into the place of heinous sin. It's not comprehensive in any way, but we do see certain things in this passage that kind of inform us how a believer can fall into this kind of heinous sin where you would actually deny the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, uh, when we allow our emotions, okay, our reason, or our life experiences to upstage what the Word of God has to say about any particular issue. Do you know people like that? Well, I know what that's what it says, but that's not what I believe. I'm professing believers. Uh, they're not allowing the Word to critique what they believe. Okay? They're critiquing the Word by their emotions, their life experience, their thoughts. You see this with Peter. Just hours before, 
Just hours before Peter denies Jesus, and Jesus had predicted that Peter would, uh, would deny him, he refused to take Jesus' word seriously, didn't he? He refused to take him at his word. He says, you're going to betray me, or you're going to deny me three times. And he said, I will follow you to prison and to death. He refused to take Jesus' word seriously. Furthermore, since chapter 9, verse 22, Jesus has told the disciples numerous times, I'm going to die on a cross, and I'm going to be raised from the grave on the third day. And yet, as we saw earlier, Peter is following him because he wants to see the end. He does not believe it's going to end well for Jesus. He has not taken Jesus seriously. He has not taken his word seriously. When a Christian is not living in complete dependency on the word of God and allowing the word of God to critique their thoughts, their actions, their will, their affections, their motivations, you can bank on it. That Christian is on a slow drift. A slow drift. Secondly, when we pridefully think we are beyond certain sins, there's no way Peter would have believed that he was going to deny Jesus the way he did. Robert Murray McShane is a Scottish theologian from another century. And he says something very important. And you may find it shocking, but I absolutely believe what he says. He says, the seed of every known sin to man is in my heart. The seed of every sin known to man is in my heart. What is he saying? He's saying this. All of us are in Adam. Adam was our representative in the garden. Through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and death to all men for all have sinned in Adam. Okay? And as a result, there's no person alive that has more or less of Adam than another person. We are all in Adam, and we all have that capacity to commit sins we could never envision us committing. We have to recognize that. In fact, in Mark and Matthew's account, Jesus had told the eleven that they would all fall away. Here's what Peter said. It's not in Luke's account, but it's in Matthew and Mark. He said, even though they all fall away, I will not. Famous last words. Famous last words. Thirdly, and organically related to the previous, is prayerlessness. I'm not talking about... Um, there are people who don't believe they're prayerless because they, they pray over their meals. Okay? Let me just tell you, if that's, all the t- that's the only place time you pray... You're prayerless, okay? I'm talking about if your life is not a life, an expression of utter dependency on God. It's what I call spiritual breathing. You wake up in dependency on God. You are aware of your dependency. You are crying out to Him throughout the day. You have those times every day where you spend with God, with His Word open, and you are praying through the Scriptures. If that's not, that's not representative of your life. You are on a drift. You are on a drift. I can assure you. To be prayerful is to be in part watchful that what Robert Murray McShane says is indeed true. 
I have the capacity to commit sins that I never dreamed I would ever or could ever commit. Just a few minutes before, as we saw the Son of God had twice admonished the disciples, pray lest you enter into temptation. And we're seeing what happens when you don't pray. You go vigilante and you go denial on our Lord Jesus Christ. Fourth, we underestimate the reality of spiritual warfare. Again, that's related to prayer. Satan had demanded to sift Peter. And Peter seems oblivious to that reality, even though Jesus had warned him. Now later, Peter's going to write these beautiful words. In 1 Peter 1, or 1 Peter 5, he's going to say, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, stand firm in the faith. Peter's writing from experience there. Yes, D-Day has occurred. On D-Day, the devil's head was crushed. In Jesus Christ, we have victory. But the day hasn't come yet. The day for the Christian is when Christ returns in glory and consummates everything that he has ushered in inaugurally in his first appearing. Between D-Day of the cross and the resurrection and V-Day when Christ returns, we, the church, operate. Yes, we operate from a posture of victory. But the devil has in the providence of God been permitted to exercise tragic sway in this present time. There is warfare. There, warfare is real. And it's real for the Christian. That's why Paul, in his most church-centered letter, Ephesians, would end the entire letter by warning us about warfare. Be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord in the power of His might for our struggles not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities in the heavenly places. Put on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation. Take up the shield of faith to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. He's writing to Christians there. And so, when we underestimate the reality of spiritual warfare, we're on that drift. Peter is going to learn that. And that brings us to really the most hopeful part of this passage. We saw, firstly, that uh, the most committed disciple can commit grievous sin. But our last point is this. Even the most grievous sinner can be forgiven. Even the most grievous sinner can be forgiven. Look with me in verse 61. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. That must have been some kind of penetrating gaze. Jesus is about to be crucified in just a few hours, and he's still concerned about his disciples. Okay? He's concerned about his spiritual warfare or his, or his spiritual uh, position and spiritual health. The Lord looked at him and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. 
Satan had indeed sifted Peter, right? And Peter, because he's not armed with prayer. Now, prayer represents just communion with God. All right? It, it, how do we commune with God? We commune with God with our Bibles open in the home. We commune with God corporately as we are actively involved in body life, church life. So prayer is just shorthand for communion with God. Peter had not been communing, and here he opened himself up to the devil. And that's why I think the rooster here is important. Peter, uh, Jesus could have made his point without the rooster. He, said, he could have said, you're going to deny me three times. But he says, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. Now, why is that important? Here's why I think that's important. Um, Jesus, by predicting that the rooster would crow, How do you predict the rooster crowing? Okay. Well, you could say, well, he knows the rooster is going to crow as the sun rises. But how did he know that the rooster would crow upon the third denial? Okay. What Jesus is indicating there, what he is signaling, is that his hands may be bound, but he's still in control. All right? He is still in control of things. Peter had seen Jesus rebuke. That's the word that was used in Luke 4. He saw Jesus rebuke his mother-in-law's fever. How do you rebuke a fever? He saw Jesus, here's the same word, rebuke the wind and the waves when they were in that boat about to turn over. He saw Jesus, here's the same word, rebuke 2,000 demons to come out of a man. He had seen Jesus raise at least three people from the grave. He had seen Jesus speak with remarkable authority. Jesus was in control then. But he didn't look like he was in control now. But then the rooster crowed. And in coming to terms with the fact that appearance was not reality, Jesus is still in control, Peter understood at this point he could be forgiven. No matter how heinous his sin was he could be forgiven he hadn't paid much attention to Jesus words up to this point but after that rooster crowed and Jesus looked upon Peter it says that Peter remembered the saying of the Lord and this would have brought him hope now why would this have brought him hope because in that same passage where Jesus predicted his denial and the rooster crowing upon that denial, he told Peter, I am praying for you. And when you turn again, not if, when you turn again, strengthen your brothers. And the fact that Jesus prays for his disciples... You say, well, yes, he's praying for Peter. How does he know he's, uh, that he's praying for me? Well, in John 17, that very Thursday night, it's not in Luke's account, but it is in John, Jesus, praying to the Father in the longest recorded prayer, says, Father, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for those you've given me out of the world. In other words, he's praying for every single person who would repent of their sins and believe in his name. 
He's praying for every disciple. He's praying for every believer who would ever live. And you know what He prays? Keep them in your name. Keep them in your name. And then He prayed, Father, sanctify them by Your truth. Your Word is truth. And the Father always answers the prayer of the Son. That's what would have given Peter this great hope. That's why the fact that Jesus prays for us is a more significant reality than the fact that we don't pray enough. Let's be honest, we don't pray enough. I don't pray enough. You don't pray enough. If we really believed what the Bible says about prayer, we would schedule everything else around our prayer life. We don't pray enough. And the fact that He ever lives to make intercession for us is a more significant reality for us than the fact that we don't pray enough. Because His prayer ensures that we will be sanctified. His prayer ensures that we will be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. His prayer ensures repentance. And that explains what happens next in this text. Notice verse 62. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Now, there are unbelievers that, that weep over blowing it. Alright? Judas was one. Judas wept and he hated the fact he did what he did. But that's not enough. We have to make a distinction here between the tears of attrition and the tears of contrition. You know, it's a fancy term. What do you mean there? Well, attrition means you are devastated because of the consequences you know they're going to fall on you because of what you did. That's me-centered. That's self-centered. So you have a child who's done something wrong and they're really upset, not because they did it, but because they know they're going to receive you know, discipline for it, okay? That's the tears of attrition. That was Judas. That's worldly sorrow, as Paul calls it. Tears of, tears of contrition is godly sorrow. It's the kind of tears that the psalmist declared, David, when he said, against you and you only have I sinned. It's the tears of contrition. Tears of contrition or attrition are not sufficient. It's just remorse. J.C. Ryle said, remorse can make a man miserable like Judas Iscariot. But it can do no more. It does not lead him to God. Do you get that? Remorse does not lead you to God. Attrition does not lead you to God. It just makes you miserable. Only contrition will lead you to God. Contrition does that. During the First Awakening, Jonathan Edwards, and I'm telling you, in the 1740s, a great move of God happened on this country, the likes of which I pray we will see again, but we haven't seen since. Repentance and faith, just, it was just happening everywhere. Okay, baptismal services like we saw this morning, it would have taken hours. 
in many churches. And during that first great awakening, Jonathan Edwards was leading a prayer service and there were 800 men in the room. 800 men. And a woman walked into that service and passed a note to Jonathan Edwards. And he read it privately and the note read, Would you men please pray for my husband? Because of his spiritual pride, he's unloving and he's hard and difficult to live with. Jonathan Edwards read it privately, but he decided to be very bold. And so he said, he read the letter, read the note to the 800 men. And then he asked, would the man that this describes... Raise your hand. Because we want to pray for you. Thinking the man may have been there. 300 hands went up. 300 hands went up. 300 men who had been convicted by the Holy Spirit. Going public with their private sin. That's contrition. That's contrition. Contrition is evident when we're as concerned about our hidden sins as we are the fact that we've been found out publicly. That is contrition. And this contrition was turning America upside down in the 1740s. It's the contrition we see with Peter here. And in that regard, doesn't this passage really end with a very hopeful note for us? I mean, you think about it. It's hard to top Peter's sin. Now, some of you have challenged that in your life. I've challenged that. The fact is, it's hard to top what he did. What his, what his sin was, was grievous. Considering the circumstances, considering his proximity to Jesus as one of the intimate three, considering what Jesus was about to go through because of Peter's sin, what he did was remarkably sinful and wicked. It is hard to top what Peter did. But where his sin abounded, grace much more abounded. You cannot out the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why this passage is so important for us. Even the most committed disciple can commit the most grievous sins, but even the most grievous sins can be forgiven. And of course, we're going to have to read later on in the text to see that what Peter experienced was true repentance, but it was repentance. Takeaways, as we close this out. First of all, and I brought this out on Sunday nights in our study in Jonah, but it bears repeating here. The true measure of our spiritual condition, our spiritual state, is our functional theology and not just our confessional theology. And there's one thing to confess something, but the, how you live reveals what you really believe. Okay? When Peter was safely... In the cocoon of the community of faith. He was bold, man. You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. But now he's out in the world. And he shrivels. Instead of being bold, he cowards away. 
In private with other believers, he had confessed glorious things, but once in public, when it wasn't as safe to be a disciple, his functional theology revealed what he really believed. How about you? Is there a gap between what you confess and profess and your actual functional theology? Is there a gap between what you confess within the walls of the community of faith and perhaps even in your own home and what you actually do outside the home? You know, it's subtle, but we deny Jesus more often than we're even aware of. If your way of life and your way of speaking it has so little distinction with an unbeliever that they can't even discern the difference between what you believe and what they believe, you deny Jesus. I deny Jesus when I tell people to visit my church. But I don't tell them that Jesus is the Son of God, that He died on the cross for sinners, was raised from the grave uh, for our pardon, and that we are sinners and we must repent or, we going to, or we're going to hell. That's evangelism. It's good to invite people to church, but that's not evangelism. Evangelism is telling them about their need for the Lord Jesus Christ. I deny Jesus when in order to fit in, I don't make much of Him with those that I'm around. I've told this story before, but it bears repeating. In 1993, I was at the Masters Tournament. I had been invited there by some, some people, and there was a corporate brunch uh, before the last day of the tournament. It was a Sunday. It was Easter Sunday at that. And I was asked by the person heading this up to pray over the brunch. And this person said, but don't pray in Jesus' name because there's Jews here. I don't want you to offend them. Now at that point, I should have said, then I can't pray. But I said, okay. And I prayed a generic prayer to a generic God. And I felt bad about it, but I could reason it. I could reason it. After all, I was just doing what I was asked. Later on that day, a guy named Bernard Longer won the tournament. He was an evangelical Christian. He won the Masters on Easter Sunday. CBS sticks the mic in his face, and he says, Before I say anything else, the most important thing about today is not the fact that I won the Masters. The most important thing about today is this is the day we celebrate that Jesus Christ, my Lord, has been raised from the grave. And I could hear the rooster crow. Now keep in mind, boy, I was a spiritually zealous and mature person in 1993. I read the, I read the Bible twice that year on a reading plan. Memorized a lot of Scripture. I visited, I was living in Birmingham, I visited 14 churches that year because none of them had the theology and the doctrine and the teaching that was robust enough for this spiritual giant. And God said, I'll show you how mature you are. He tested me and I failed the test. So the, the real test isn't what we confess in our safe cocoon. Okay? That's not the real test. It's what we do and say and confess in a world opposed. And at the end of the day, this really does reveal what we believe about Jesus. Peter did not believe sufficiently enough about what Jesus had said and who Jesus was. Again, he was following Jesus to see the end. 
He didn't think it was going to end well. Secondly, Peter likely loved Jesus more than any of us in here. And yet it wasn't enough. Peter loved the Lord Jesus. And it wasn't enough. And because of his spiritual slumber, he fell. He fell tragically. He, wasn't a, he didn't have a praying life. That's very clear from the, the, the greater context. And so we are unprepared spiritually for the challenges that sin uh, confronts us with when we are prayerless. We need to know the capacity of our hearts for defection. You know, earlier that night, again, it's not in Luke, but it is in John. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So what prayer is essentially this. You're confessing. Father, I come to you through the Son of God, the mediator. And I am confessing I am weak. And I am prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And I confess with Jesus now, apart from Him, I can do nothing. Be my strength. Be my power. Be my grace. Be my pleasure and treasure today. Prayerless Christianity will lead you down roads that you never envision you would ever take. But thirdly, here's the good news. Jesus knows our condition. He knows it. And even before you blow it, as you blow it, and after you blow it, if you are a believer today, He is interceding. He's advocating for you. Remember, I have prayed for you so that when you return, you will strengthen my brothers. And that's the very reason He came. He came as our advocate. He didn't come to just work miracles. He didn't come just to be a, a good, kind friend. He came as Savior. Okay? He came to save us from our sin, to save us from hell, to save us from ourselves to save us from the wrath of God. He's our advocate. And as our advocate, He does two things. He intercedes for us, and He makes atonement for our sins. That's the good news that we have in the Gospel. This passage is reminding us why we need a Savior. Because if Peter can blow it, trust me, you've blown it. And you will blow it. And Peter's response to this grace is going to be comprehensive. He's going to go on and preach Pentecost. He's going to write two letters that are canonized. And those letters are so focused and centered on the gospel of grace. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. That was Peter. Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave and into an inheritance that cannot perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for us. That was Peter, a man who had experienced Jesus' mercy anew. Then he would die professing His name. Fourth, God excels at bringing His people to the end of themselves. 
His anger over your sin is your hope. And He's angry over your sin. He's not going to pour out His wrath on you. The wrath's already been poured out on the Son if you're a believer. But like a good father, He's going to discipline you. Okay? He's a better father than any father in here. His discipline is foolproof. He's very good at bringing His children to the end of themselves. I love what C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity. God's love is not wearied by our sins or our indifference. And therefore, it is quite relentless in its determination that we shall be cured of those sins. Get that? God's love is relentless in its determination that we will be cured of our sins. At whatever cost to us, at whatever cost to Him. And there was a cost to Him. He's about to pay it in just a few hours. The kind of cost He pays, the human language cannot even describe it. But He's separated from God. He takes our judgment. He takes our wrath. How can that not stir you? How can it not just change you from the inside out? That's where God wants you. Fifthly and finally, God is the God of new beginnings. God is the God of new beginnings. Realize that at the moment of your contrition, at the moment of your confession, at the moment of your repentance, is the moment of rescue. It's the moment of rescue. When Jesus, after His resurrection, met with the eleven disciples at the sea, He asked Peter three times if He loved Him. I have a feeling it's because Peter denied Him three times. So He asked Him three times, Do you love Me? Peter responded three times, Yes, Lord, I love You. Three times, Peter, or Jesus, confirms His call on Peter's life. Then tend My sheep. Tend my lambs. Feed my sheep. We would have thought Peter, Jesus was done with Peter. He was just beginning with Peter. And that's exactly what he did. Even after being thrown into prison. And they are telling him in Acts chapter 4, You better shut up about this man. Or you're going to be put to death. And here's what he said in Acts chapter 4 verse 20. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. That was Peter. Peter kept preaching till he died. Strong tradition tells us upside down on a Roman cross because he said he was not worthy to die like his Savior, his King, his Messiah. And may God the Spirit revive that kind of faith in all of us. Because when he does, it will